Hello everyone and welcome to our Mint podcast number 6. Today we have Dr. Moa Lazy, who is an intern at the Tanzu University Hospital. Anurkha and myself Nava are both six-year students on Mint exam. In this podcast we're going to be discussing a bit about GKA, what it is, how to recognize and manage it, and also chat through a real life case that has come through a local hospital in Tanzu. Um just a bit of a uh, disclaimer. the content is not necessarily examinable and we're not affiliated with JCU and these podcasts are solely based on peer peer teaching all right so i guess some mo uh dr mo i just got to introduce then so i guess let's get started with what dk is right so um i guess i want to start with like looking at DKA in comparison to HHS. So HHS is hyperosmolar hypoglycemic state. Uh, it's also known as hyperosmotic uh, hypoglycemic non-ketotic state. So basically DKA and HHS are two of the most serious acute complications of diabetes. Um there's a lot more to what I'm going to talk about right now um with regards to the comparison between the two, but I think there's a few important distinctions that I'm going to make. And firstly I guess DKA is typically associated with type 1 diabetes and HHS is typically associated with type 2. And I want to make a, a point here just to stress a point sorry is I'm using the word associated because obviously like in medicine is like exceptions to every rule. So you can get DKA and type 2 is what I'm trying to say. Um I think the other important distinction is the ketosis and DKA. So you get ketosis due to the insulin deficiency that's present. So sugar is the main source of energy for cells that make up your muscles and other tissues and normally insulin helps sugar get into the cells. So if you don't have insulin your body can't use the sugar properly for energy and then you get this release of hormones that break down fat as fuels and then you get acids which are known as ketones. So you get this ketoacidosis. And the hormones that I just referenced are things like glucagon, growth hormone, cortisol and they uh, cause gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis. And then you get this vicious cycle so you get increased level of glucose in serum but decreased uptake in the peripheral tissues for tissue metabolism to so your hypoglycemia. Um then you kind of get this osmotic gradient with free water drawn out from the extravascular space uh, and then you get glycosuria and then that causes the dehydration that we all know is a common um symptom in DKA and HHS. Typically another important distinction to make is that HHS has uh worse dehydration than DKA and that's cuz HHS has more of an insidious onset than DKA so the, the hypoglycemia just over a few days you then you get the glycosuria dehydration is more severe um it's actually got a high mortality rate as well HHS does than DKA which I think a lot of people might not know okay so we can already see that it's a pretty concerning presentation right safe to say it'd be pretty helpful to be able to recognize the clinical signs and symptoms that can point to a rapid diagnosis and thus help with the rapid management however the signs and symptoms are not always the most specific and can include hyperventilation dehydration abdominal pain vomiting and impaired or loss of consciousness Obviously in a known diabetic who presents with these quick and appropriate measurements of BGLs and ketones can lead to rapid confirmation of the diagnosis with life-saving treatment starting quickly. However, this is not always the case and actually many young type 1 diabetics are diagnosed after presenting with DKA for the very first time. So it's important to have a high level of suspicion in a patient who presents with some or all of these symptoms. 
especially if they are known diabetic. Remember the acronym ABCDEFG? The DEFG stands for Don't Ever Forget Glucose. All right. So what can precipitate an episode of DKA? It is important to be aware of this in both diabetics and newly diagnosed diabetics who may present with DKA for the first time. Um, so some of the pre precipitants could be having an infection, not following your treatment plan, such as missing doses of insulin, an injury or surgery, taking certain medications such as steroids, alcohol uh, or illicit drug consumption, pregnancy, and also interestingly, having your period. Obviously, the last two pertains to just women. So we looked at what DKA is, what the signs and symptoms are of it, and what can precipitate it. So how about we get stuck into the management side of things, with investigations being incorporated to this section. All right, so how do we manage it? I'm just going to simplify it and say, firstly, initial investigations and basic management, and we've got fluid replacement, and then we've got insulin plus or minus potassium. So that's kind of a very simple way to... Uh, manage DKA and we're very lucky here in Queensland we've got a really good DKA protocol that's been made to utilize in the management of patients with DKA and it is pretty straightforward to follow you can find it on the quotes website um, in Townsville we actually got the IMR electronic medical records system and it's got a power plan on um, how to manage DKA for all um, the doctors in the hospital which is really really handy in stressful times so on a side note these guidelines uh, for DKA management in over 16-year-olds um, with the paediatric version also being available. So we encourage all of you to have a look at this guideline on DKA management. It's really straightforward to follow and you can pause the video right now, podcast, and pull it up on the Queps website or just Google Queps DKA protocol so you can have a look at it as we continue talking or as we go through the case in a minute. Essentially, the protocol neatly breaks up the management into hours. So hour one, hour two, hours two to four, and subsequent management along with discharge planning. This is fantastic as it allows you to manage your patient in an organized fashion each step of the way, as well as plan ahead for the next few hours at your discretion. Each section consists of step one being the initial or further investigations part, which also adequately prompts the medical officer to ensure they are correctly monitoring the patient's glucose levels, ketones, and relevant electrolytes and acid-base balance. An additional point with respect to DKA and the protocol that my um, colleagues have been discussing is on cerebral edema. Cerebral edema is a potentially fatal complication of DKA and its management. However, do not worry, or at least well, try not to worry, um, as the guidelines also come with the appropriate management of a patient with confirmed or suspected cerebral edema. So who is at risk of cerebral edema? It's often the younger patients. And how will it present? Usually it's headaches or reduced level of consciousness, agitation or aggression. And how do we manage, manage it or take action? So that would be by monitoring for signs of cerebral edema, um, which should start from the time of admission and continue up to at least 24 hours after admission. If there's suspicion of cerebral edema or the patient is not improving within four hours of admission, you need to call the consultant. In the meantime, you also should organize CT scan to confirm your findings. Consider ICU admission because it's an indication for checking arterial blood gases. Consider IV mannitol, 100 mils of 20% over 20 minutes or dexamethasone 8 milligrams, but this should only be done after discussion with the consultant or um, the ICU. 
The pathophysiology of why cerebral edema occurs in DKA is unclear. It might be related to osmotic change, fluctuation in cerebral blood flow, and neuroinflammation. Yeah, so just to touch further on the pathophysiology being unclear, there's those three uh, theories as to why cerebral edema occurs in DKA. The old theory was the osmotic change, um, and that's a reversal in the fluid shifts um, causing brain cell swelling and cerebral edema. But I think these new theories, fluctuation, blood flow, and neuroinflammation are coming out, but not, we're not going to delve into today. So Dr. Moore is now going to tell us about a patient um, he's been seeing at the Townsend University Hospital, um, and we'll see how that relates to the discussion we're having today. Cool. Thanks, Nava. So, yeah, we'll get stuck into a brief case on a patient who did present to in DKA um, to the Townsend University Hospital. We'll talk about how they presented and how they were managed, and obviously we use the protocol. So we had a 49-year-old. Uh, with type 1 diabetes, come to ED with nausea and vomiting. She has her diabetes management continuous insulin pump, and she was well yesterday, was reported BGLs always in normal range. However, overnight, she did develop a bit of nausea, started feeling unwell this morning, some abdo pain and some vomiting. She's been using her pump for years, uh, recently had a sense of change only a few days ago. So the morning of her presentation, she had BGLs that were about 32.7. She states she no, never normally gets hypoglycemic unless she's unwell, and she usually remains within her target range of seven to nine. She denied urinary symptoms, didn't have any fevers or any unwell feeling in the days prior. So now I'm going to pass it on to Anuki, who's going to talk a bit about her diabetes and how it's managed. Thanks, Mo. So with regards to her diabetes, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 35. She is not known to the endocrine team at TUH and is unsure of her last HbA1c. I'll run through her normal management now. So her insulin rate is 0.5 units for 24 hours. Her carb counting is at one unit per 15 grams of carbohydrates. Her correction boluses are directed as per her pump, AccuCheck, and she is unaware of any micro or macrovascular complications. The patient is a non-smoker, non-drinker, and does not use any recreational drugs. With respect to her pump, she states the only issues are the occasional occlusion, which apparently occurred yesterday and required her to change her tubing and needle because of the said occlusion. As per her notes, the her last DKA was back in 2012. And now I'll state her examination findings briefly. So her pulse was regular and strong. She had dry mucous membranes and a GCS of 15. Her blood pressure was 116 on 56, and her heart rate was 105. Her heart sounds were dual with no murmur and she had a clear chest. Her abdomen was soft and non-tender and there was no lipohypertrophy. And on to you, Nava, now. What do you think is going on with the patient? Um, Anuki, thanks. I think it is becoming clear that the patient has DKA, especially given the talking on DKA. But anyways, to completely consolidate our diagnosis, let's look at some of the relevant investigations for this patient. So on presentation to the ED, she had BGLs at 27, ketones at 6.2, and an anion gap of 21. Her pH was 7.3. Her sodium was 136, um, corrected sodium of 145. On a quick side note here, it is important to correct sodium in hyperglycemia as it causes a phenomenon called pseudo-hyponatremia. 
Hypoglycemia causes a osmotic shift of water from the intracellular to the extracellular space, causing a relative dilution or hyponatremia. So that's that. And her white blood cell count was 13.8 and her potassium was 4.8. So I believe it's safe to say the impression was immediately that the patient was in DKA. So after the detailed history in conjunction with the relevant investigations, the impression was that this diabetic patient was in DKA, likely due to a pump occlusion. Despite likely pump occlusion, an infective source precipitating her DKA was to be ruled out as well. Yeah, thanks, Nava. So that's right. An infective source always got to be ruled out in a patient presenting with DKA. So um, that kind of ties into what I'm about to talk about, the management of it and investigations. So the DKA protocol was correctly put into place by ED staff and the endocrine team were contacted for potential admission, as typically occurs when a patient presents in DKA. So as for the endocrine team initial plan, they did the following. So urine dip and MCS as a means of occult sources of infection that may have precipitated her DKA. Uh, they downloaded the pump data to have a look at her overall glycemic control. Um, they informed diabetes educators to ensure they were aware of the patient to come to review once they were well, as is standard practice on the endo team. Um, hydration was continued with normal saline as per the protocol that ED had already put into place. Um, her pump was ceased and she was commenced on an ACTRAP infusion as per the protocol. Standard practice is 0.1 units per kilograms per hour. So she was 60 kilos, so that's six units per hour. Um, ED was advised to continue the infusion at this rate until her BGL is less than 14 and then to contact endocrine for further review. So the infusion was started straight away because her potassium was 4.8 as previously mentioned. Uh, so there was no need for potassium replacement prior to its infusion. Uh, dextrose 10% was also ordered to commence at 100 mL an hour when blood glucose levels were less than 14. So I'll touch on a um, this point here quickly because it's really important to ensure that dextrose is given as well as insulin so it doesn't drive the beat so it's really important oh wait it's really important to ensure dextrose is given so insulin doesn't drive bgls too low so you might think this is counterintuitive but the primary aim for insulin and dk management has absolutely nothing to do with the patient's glucose levels it's to correct the acidosis and ketosis so in order to keep pumping insulin through the patient, we need to give them dextrose accordingly when their glucose levels drop so they don't become too hypoglycemic. So the patient also received PRN antiemetics and Clexane 40 milligrams. Uh, ongoing BBGs and UEGs were ordered to continually monitor her acidemia and electrolytes and ketones were also done regularly as per standard practice. Okay, so Anuki is going to talk a bit more about the management now. Thanks, Mo, for taking us through the initial management, so I'll just continue on the case. So the patient stayed overnight, and she made a successful recovery, thankfully, with her BGLs improving to 8.1 and her ketosis resolving with morning ketones of 0.1. The insulin infusion was ceased thereafter, and the patient was commenced on a basal bolus regime for the morning, receiving 10 units of lantus and a subcutaneous bolus of some Novorapid insulin with her breakfast according to her carb intake. She was monitored for a brief time after this to ensure the ketoacidosis was still resolved before successfully discharging her to the care of her diabetic GPs who handles the pump and was given the task of arranging her with a new pump. So to conclude the case, I'll hand over to Nava. All right, thanks Anuki and more. 
Um, so there you have it, a pretty classic case of DKA, which fortunately was treated promptly and appropriately with no issues for the patients or staff, which is always a great thing. I guess that pretty much wraps things up. So to summarize what we have covered, what is DKA? What are the clinical signs and symptoms? What can precipitate an episode of DKA? We also briefly touched on a serious complication associated with DKA, cerebral edema. We talked more about the management of DKA and the extreme usefulness of the protocol. And finally, we discussed a real-life case of a patient presented with a classical DKA. We hope you all have really benefited from this podcast, and we appreciate all of those who have listened along. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, and until next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, Thank you. guys. Yeah, my money out.